Hi, writers. I'm glad you are here for our new episode on writing fiction. This is Jim Thayer, and I have returned from a holiday in South Africa and India. Patty and I saw wild elephants, and they are bigger and handsomer in person than they are on TV. The most beautiful animal in the world is a leopard, which I can report as a peer-reviewed scientific fact. We saw dozens of other species, and we had a wonderful time. I suppose we can be of two minds about holidays. I wish it could have gone on longer, but I'm glad to be home. My new novel, Fagin and Miss Havisham, has been released and is available at Amazon. The novel takes place in London in the 1820s, and its characters are Charles Dickens's famous characters from many of his novels. Fagin and Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. They are younger than in Dickens's novels, and I toss them together to see what happens. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one, and I'm delighted. I had huge fun researching and writing the novel. I tried to take readers back to London 200 years ago, and I hope you'll consider getting a print or ebook copy. You'll be able to see whether I can actually do the writing techniques we talk about in these episodes. The title again is Fagin and Miss Havisham. Thank you. Let's get to work and I hope have some fun. While on vacation, I read two novels by Elizabeth Gilbert, The City of Girls and The Signature of All Things. She's among the best writers I've come across. Elizabeth Gilbert also wrote the best-selling memoir, Eat, Pray, and Love, which I haven't read yet, but which is now on my Kindle. As I was reading her novels, I was reminded of a strong plotting technique, one she is so good at. Let's say we are outlining our new novel, figuring out what happens in each chapter, or we are partway into the actual writing of the story, and we slowed down because we don't have enough plot. We haven't figured enough twists and turns. We haven't got them figured out. And these twists and turns are essential to keeping the reader involved in the story. We've got a hundred pages worth of plot, but we need three hundred. Not having figured out enough plot is the main reason writers can stall while writing a novel. In other words, we're out of plot ideas. We need more. Uh, what can we do? Here is what Elizabeth Gilbert's novels reminded me to do. Invent a big, new, odd character and add him or her to the plot. Invent someone new. Such a, such a new character will open up the story. Lots of plot possibilities will pour from our heads regarding this new character. In her novel, The Signature of All Things, Elizabeth Gilbert does just this. She adds them to the plot. They just appear in the novel like knocks at the door, often without having been foreshadowed. They just show up. Uh, for example, she drops into the plot the astonishingly beautiful orphan Prudence. Then the 
charmingly daffy Rita, and then the mysterious operator Dick, then a handsome and free-spirited drifter named Ambrose Pike, who may or may not be crazy. And she adds uh, an ultra-level-headed but lovable housekeeper, Hanukkah, who in her behavior reminds the readers of Jiminy Cricket. And then she adds a little orange, angry, stray dog named Roger, and then a seemingly noble Tahitian man named Tomorrow Morning. Isn't that lovely, a name, Tomorrow Morning? In the novel, readers quickly learn that when a new character enters the plot, exciting things will soon happen. These characters add plot points to the story. They propel it along. There's no time for the story to lag because there's always someone new and odd to mix things up and for the reader to wonder about. In The Signature of All Things, her novel, they show up, one after another, a a parade of fascinating characters, each of whom pushes the plot. Charles Dickens did the same thing. Look at any of his novels, such as Nicholas Nickleby. Dickens's protagonists, such as Nicholas Nickleby, usually aren't too interesting. But rather, the protagonists are blanks used to observe and interact with Dickens's other characters. Uh, his other characters, his great sidekicks and his weird players and loathsome villains. In Nicholas Nickleby, there's the scheming, vengeful, uncaring uncle named Ralph Nickleby, the comic character Nicholas's mother, Catherine Nickleby, who is obtuse and vapid. (laughs) She's wonderfully drawn. There's the violent headmaster named Wackford Squeers. Where does Dickens come up with these fabulous names? There's the pathetic Smike, the boorish and aggressive Fanny Squeers, the fanciful gigolo Mr. Mantellini, the vain Miss Nag, uh, the unsavory nobleman Sir Mulberry, and the lovable stage manager Vincent Crummles, the old lecher and miser Arthur Gride, and the lunatic and nameless man next door who falls in love with Nicholas's mother Catherine and so throws, <laughs> throws vegetables over the fence to land at her feet. And there are more characters. Dickens, of course, is a master plotter, but a main impression of his stories is of a wonderful hodgepodge of weird and intense character characters. It's a mixing bowl of characters. We can't stop reading Elizabeth Gilbert or Charles Dickens' novels because who knows who will show up next. And so this is the technique. Is your plot lagging? Or are you out of ideas for your story? Invent a new character and throw her into the plot. Let me offer a caution, though, one you likely are aware of. We should not introduce into our story a dull character. We shouldn't base our new character on our friends or family. 
because if you're like most of us, your friends and family, and, and pardon the rudeness, they aren't interesting enough for fiction. In all likelihood, uh, our friends and family have spent their lives trying to avoid the mannerisms and pathologies and weirdnesses and the odd appearances and the, the trouble and the backstory that make for successful characters in fiction. Your friends and family have likely tried to live normal, successful lives, and I hope they've been good at it. They are probably not the fodder for fiction. Instead, to add a new strong plot element, create a big and bold new character, someone unforgettable, maybe someone outrageous. We are working in fiction, not real life, and we can ramp up our characters. We writers should dare our readers to turn away from our new character. And if they can't turn away, we have a winner. Uh, so is our plot lagging Adam Miss Havisham, as Dickens did in Great Expectations, or a Uriah Heep, as Dickens did in David Copperfield, or the Artful Dodger, as he did in Oliver Twist. If we add big and bold new characters, plot points will rush at us. Let's change the subject. Sometimes we talk about broad topics such as adding new characters to help us generate plot, and sometimes we take out the magnifying glass and look at individual sentences, even single phrases, and I'd like to do that now. If we can learn a number of techniques about sentence-by-sentence -sentence writing and put them all together when writing, then our prose will shine we will have the joy of creating a perfect sentence, one that pleases us to write and pleases the attentive reader to read. We'll be proud of our ability to convey an idea in slim and powerful prose. Write 12,000 lovely and tight sentences and there will be our novel, and it'll be powerful. Let's talk again about a wonderful technique for creating a strong sentence, and it's this. Avoid qualifiers. A qualifier is a word or phrase that qualifies another word or phrase. E.B. White, the author of Charlotte's Web and co-author of The Elements of Style, called qualifiers the leeches that invest the pond of prose. He also talked about intensifiers, but let's focus on qualifiers. A qualifier limit its target phrase. It reduces it. It weakens the target phrase's impact by making it smaller. In the phrase, a little bit worried, a little bit is a qualifier. Here's a partial list of qualifiers. Almost, as in almost worried. Somewhat, as in somewhat worried. Sort of as in sort of worried, a little, rather, kind of, slightly, a bit, pretty, as in pretty worried. How do these qualifiers work to a sentence's detriment? We want our sentences to be strong, to be vivid. We want to get across to the reader a clear idea. Qualifiers reduce strength, reduce strength 
and vividness and clarity in a sentence. Here's an example. I was a little bewildered, where a little is a qualifier. Instead of bewildered, our character is a little bewildered. What has happened is that the writer came up with the word bewildered, a strong word, then backed off, perhaps thinking bewildered is too strong. Uh, but instead of coming up with an accurate word for the character's state of mind, such as puzzled, as in I was puzzled, the writer used a qualifier, a little bit bewildered. This happens all the time when we are writing. Some governor in us wants to throttle back our image by adding a qualifier. So instead of he was indignant, we write he was a little indignant or he was somewhat indignant, or he was almost indignant, or he was sort of indignant, or he was kind of indignant. Indignant is a, is a strong word, but these qualifiers bleed off the strength of the word. Instead of indignant, he's now somewhat indignant or a little indignant, and so the, the phrase becomes tepid. Some writers are in the habit they don't know it, but they are, of perpetually using qualifiers. Their minds work a certain way, uh, habitually backing off bold words by modifying their words with qualifiers. It's as if T.S. Eliot's J. Alfred Prufrock did their writing, constantly temporizing, asserting, then reducing, softening their words, uh, pablomizing them, is pablomizing a word? It should be. Uh, the act of making something pablum. Here is the main way to avoid the mushiness qualifiers can cause, and it's easy. Don't use them. Don't write the phrases a little bit or a little. Rather, somewhat, kind of, sort of, slightly, almost. Instead, do one of two things. First, Go big or go home. Write, I was angry, or I was bewildered, or I was indignant. We can ramp up the scene by using the word rather than the qualified word. She was angry is a strong sentiment. She was rather angry, not so much. Write, she was angry. Make your character angry rather than a little angry or sort of angry or somewhat angry. Second, if, if saying she is angry is indeed too strong for our scene, instead of softening angry with a qualifier such as rather, find the accurate word. She was irritated or she was bothered. Here's another example. If she was abnormal is too strong, instead of qualifying abnormal with something like she was rather abnormal, try she was odd or she was peculiar. Both, ad, both odd and peculiar are strong words in their own rights and read better than rather abnormal. Here's something fun we can do. If we've written some or all of our novel or short story, do a global search, pressing Control and F at the same time, and search for the phrase, a bit. If you like me, you'll find some uses of it. The qualifier, a bit, had just spilled out when I was typing. 
delete the qualifier a bit and either leave the target word alone because it's nicely strong or come up with, a, with an accurate word. If your global search finds the phrase a bit thrilled, delete a bit and leave it as thrilled if that works in your scene, or change thrilled if it is indeed too strong for the scene, too happy or delighted. We can do a global search for other qualifiers too. Search for the qualifiers rather, somewhat, sort of, kind of, slightly, almost, faintly, and we can get rid of them. Our sentences, our entire story will be more full-bodied and punchy. Getting rid of these leeches will make our story more vivid and immediate for the reader. Let me ask, where do you, where do, you do most of your writing? I suspect and hope it's a comfortable and, and quiet place because that, uh, I think, is the minimum for most writers. After much procrastination, Harold Robbins would lock himself in a hotel room, hide the clocks, and work round the clock until he was exhausted. That worked for him. But most of us need a place to write more like John Grisham's. He has said that his writing habits are powerful, and he says that he still, quote, writes at the same place, same table, same chair, with the same cup and type of coffee. That's John Grisham. Uh, what does my writing space look like? Uh, where do I sit as I broadcast these episodes and, and write? Here's a description that I hope will make these podcasts seem less like they are arriving from the air, that they're arriving from somewhere rather than nowhere. Uh, my desk is a U.S. Navy surplus office desk from the 1940s or 50s made of wood. It weighs a thousand pounds, or at least it looks like it. It's functional to a fault, as you would expect from the Navy, with no ornament or embellishment on it at all. On the desk are my laptop, of course, and seven internet and home security devices and speakers, some of which I know what they do. Also on the desk is a neon pink flamingo my daughter gave me and a lacrosse weather station readout. Also in this home office is a, a 36-gallon aquarium containing fish called cardinal, cardinal tetras. Uh, they are striking blue and red fish that look like jewels. Uh, also here, displayed nicely on stands, are a violin and a cornet that my maternal grandfather played when he was in high school. Also, uh, there's also a clarinet, which sits on my printer stand. Y you may be thinking, why, Jim, you must be a multi-talented musician. Ha, ah, I can't play any of them. I like being around musical instruments, and for some reason I tend to inherit them, even if I can't play them. And that may be the weirdest thing you here today, I'm surrounded by musical instruments, none of which I can play. Uh, also in my office is a, a large cactus called a Peruvian monstrosa, and it's lovely and, and forbidding with its one-inch needles. It sits right in my south window. 
during the podcast episodes, you may have heard a clock gong. It's a pendulum mantle clock, once owned by my maternal, my maternal great-grandparents, dating from about 1900. And one more thing. When I was a kid, I went to a Jimi Hendrix concert in Spokane, Washington. He was backed by Noel Redding on bass and Mitch Mitchell on drums, the legendary Jimi Hendrix experience. My daughter gave me a a framed replica poster for that very event in Spokane. So on my wall sits an image of Jimi Hendrix in all his glory. If I could write as well as he played the Fender Stratocaster guitar, I'd be broadcasting these episodes from my yacht in uh, in the Monaco Harbor. And there's one more thing in my office, and I don't know how he does it, but my cat Jack always manages to be in my line of sight. If I look, there he is. Uh, This ability might be some deep feline predatory African savanna instinct ingrained in his DNA, or it might be magic. He's always in my visual frame. <clears throat> I usually don't like carnivores staring at me, but I make an exception in his, in his case. So that's where I write. Maybe you've created a good space for yourself, maybe somewhere comfortable and fun. I hope your writing space is a pleasure to be in. What's my favorite quote from a writer? It's from William Faulkner, where in nine words, he touches on cosmology, religion, physics, and philosophy. He said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. We've arrived at the end of this episode. Uh, Let me add, you've never been as creeped out as when you notice a hyena staring at you from the dark. I'm glad there's usually an ocean between me and hyenas. I'll see you next time. Until then, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.